Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name's Jim Hustrip, and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I chew the fat with industry professionals who, on a daily basis, work with music for visuals. Now, you might immediately assume that I'm talking about composers, but I'm also talking about editors, music supervisors, directors, and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. In today's episode, I'm talking to Emmy Award-winning composer and solo artist Michael Price. So thank you again to the wonderful people at Audio Socket ASX for allowing me to use that piece of music as the opening gambit. Um, it's called Dark Arts and was written by me. So I need to start this episode by saying I have been fact-checked. Um, finally, somebody has picked up on something that I've said that was wrong and has written in to tell me about it. So thank you to Tim, who in episode nine picked up on a conversation I was having with Paolo Pandolfo. Now, we were talking about Jurassic Park and the guy who was working on the stop motion for Jurassic Park, and I said it was Harry Hausen. Now, Harry Hausen is often regarded as the sort of godfather of stop motion, but in this instance, it was actually Phil Tippett and Tim very rightly, got in touch to tell me that I was wrong. So if you have any other things that you would like to tell me I've got wrong, then please feel free, podcast at lartmusic.com. Um, and indeed, if you just want to get in touch, podcast at lartmusic.com. Thank you, Tim. So what can you expect from today's chit-chat with Michael Price? Uh, well, we talk about his journey from the music department of WH Smiths in Leeds to composing for shows like Sherlock and The Unforgotten. Um, he also reveals the challenges of composing music over multiple series. So obviously when you get a series to begin with, it's new, it's fresh, and you're sort of creating something from scratch. However, there are challenges associated with long-running series, and I think Sherlock ran to a sort of four series, and Unforgotten is now on series five. Um, so Michael talks about that. Michael also talks about the challenges associated with writing for Brief for TV and film, versus when he has carte blanche to write as a solo artist um, and talks about how he approaches those slightly differently. Um, he also talks very fondly of his time working with the late, great Michael Kamen, um, who apparently used to try and improvise action cues in a single take, uh, something that I would love to have seen. Um, Michael also touches on some life milestones which he feels have heavily influenced the way he writes and what he wants to write um, and how he wants to be creative. And if you listen to episode seven with Danny Mulhern, Danny talked a lot about improvisation and flow state and Michael is also somebody who leans very heavily into improvisation and flow state in order to, to be at his optimal creative best. Um, so there's some fascinating insights into to Michael's writing uh, practice there. Um, he also shares uh, his opinions on uh, how far to go when creating a demo cue. Um, I have often thought my mantra has been to sort of never allow the person listening to have to use their imagination. Michael blows that out of the water by saying actually to trust the person and not go too far down a rabbit hole has been helped him hugely. Um, so that's very interesting. Um, and we also touch on gear and plugins. I know this is a hot topic across the internet um, and Michael offers his thoughts as to whether he feels that gear and plugins can be, you know, are they a help or are they a hindrance? As ever, all the music that we discuss can be found in the show notes on your preferred podcast platform or at larpmusic.com and then just click on podcasts. 
If you enjoy the show and you have a spare moment, I would be massively grateful if you could pop on over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review the show. It just helps it reach as many people as possible. Thank you in advance for that. So without further ado, grab yourself a jammy dodger and a brew and enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Michael Price. Emmy award-winning Michael Price has composed music for TV shows such as Sherlock, Dracula and Unforgotten. Michael has received numerous award nominations and was recently nominated for a BAFTA and an Emmy for his work on Dracula with David Arnold. His film scoring work includes titles such as Eternal Beauty, Cheerful Weather and Just Jim. But as well as being a master of music for TV and film, Michael releases music as a solo artist. His solo work takes the form of beautiful improvised piano works as heard on albums like Diary or via the more lush grand orchestral work that you might hear on critically acclaimed releases Entanglement and Tender Symmetry, which were released on erased tapes. His latest release, The Hope of Better Weather, is rooted in the piano world but also exists as a bridge crossing into new terrain, including reworks and remixes from the likes of Jan Tiersen, Bill Ryder-Jones and Illuvium. And his forthcoming album, Whitson, is an exploration of the connection between sound and memory. Michael Price, thanks for joining me. Hello, Jim. It, it's always, it, it does seem like a obituary rather than an introduction <laughs> <laughs> the best yeah. of times. Well, <laughs> it, I think it's also the way, the way that sort of also I go into a very formal voice when I read it. Um, so rather than it's sort of like been free and easy, it's kind of like, it does it feel like that. No, but, um, the, but, that is, but that is the rules. That there's a sort of, um, I, I think we're, we're all known, particularly for people who, you know, who've not met any of us or sort of or heard, heard anything about us. Then then there's always a sort of a, a, a shorthand, a kind of short list of things that that um, kind of place any of us in in our surroundings. And it's um, and it's always sort of it's interesting what frame people see you through so mm. we were lucky enough to have two beautiful little kids who you may hear in the background if they're uh, uh depending on, on what happens in the next door room um but so down at the school gate i'm emily's dad it's like <laughs> yes. that that is the sort of number one number yeah. two i'm also henry's dad and uh, yeah. number three i'm i'm the the useless one that never brings the right thing in the book bag you know right, that's the sort uh, of the classic yeah yeah and, and and so it's sort of uh yeah we're we're always framed rather differently depending on uh, what the circumstances are absolutely well i think that's actually quite a real concern of a, a lot of parents is that there does seem to be almost a loss of identity because they cease to be you know michael price they become that person's um dad i think hopefully with everything that you've got going on in your professional career that that probably hasn't happened to you but um but but you know jim i i absolutely i love i love the fact that it the the sort of uh priorities around around here i mean it's one of, one of the things that we did in lockdown was move out of london where the school gate was i have to say was pretty much like first question was what do you do and we lived in a sort of slightly swanky part of london and um and now we've we've moved out to so not not quite the country but it's not a million miles away but whereabouts are you uh we're in hertfordshire so we're in berkhamstead which is a very nice nice town um but at the school gate it's sort of it, it feels like it's much more about the family and much more about um, about the kids. And I, th- and I think for me, you know, maybe we'll talk about a little bit about that later. There's definitely another, I feel like I'm moving into a new season work-wise and in terms of my sort of, um, the, the kind of music that I'm making as well. So it's, yeah, I think these things are coming together at the right time. Great. 
Well, that's uh, the serendipitous uh, sort of synchronicity, if you will. Um, yes, well, we'll definitely dig into that. Um, I think the first place I'd like to start, which is where I start with everyone, is if you can sort of cast your mind back to a, a young Michael somewhere between the ages sort of five and ten, knocking around uh, the mean streets of, uh, of Batley. Batley, West Yorkshire. Yeah. If someone was to ask, have asked you what would you like to be when you grow up, what would you have replied? Well, I, I would have definitely said from about seven that I wanted to be a trumpet player. Oh, be- okay. Because cause that, was, that was the instrument that I, that I got given, I suppose, or picked. You can never quite remember when you're a kid who, who did the deciding. Um, but, you know, I played the recorder and everything. And yeah. then I got, um, got given a trumpet and it was just like, well, well, this is obviously a great thing to do. This is, this is totally brilliant. And, and that became sort of, again, neither of my parents were musicians and I got an older brother and he, he got given a clarinet and I got given a trumpet. And, and it just became very natural that we would play music all the time. And, um, and that's sort of back to kind of like who you are or your identity. Like, you know, I was all right at sports. So I was kind of like second 11 football and cricket but not you know not like a sports star or anything mm. and i was i was all right at the uh, academic side um but also I'd, i played music and, and yorkshire is a, an amazing brass playing county and uh, so i started to play in brass bands there was a school brass band that i eventually ended up playing in the yorkshire evening post brass band wow. rehearsed, which rehearsed above a pub in leeds and i, I think i first went I was like 12 or 13 when I got taken along to play there. And and the, all these like proper hefty roofers and brickies who would go and drink four pints at the bar, go upstairs, play like angels, mm. just beautifully, go back down, probably have another few pints and I think almost certainly drive home as, as it was <laughs> was that sort of back that in the era. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so it, it was sort of always music, really. Um, so it was... From the age of seven, do you still play the trumpet, by the way? Because I've never, I didn't even know you played trumpet. <laughs> I, I have one. Right, I own okay, one, yeah. which is not quite the same. Yeah, it's probably a bit like me. I've, I have a saxophone and, and I, I sort of re- remember myself from my glory days of when I was 18 and I was quite handy with it. And when I get it out of the box, I'm just, I, I'm rubbish. I'm like, oh, well, I put that back. There's no point. It, it's so different. And, you know, you and I are surrounded by these extraordinary players who seem like yeah. another species. Yeah. And, uh, and then, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, yeah. It's, it sits in the corner just winking at me every now and again from the studio it's like hey maybe you should have another go no <laughs> so. and what was so what was the the kind of the route from that kind of discovery epiphany, epiphany at the age of seven of sort of trumpet and going wow this is there was obviously something there where you said wow music is special and then you sort of doing sort of these bands up through in, into your teens um because it was a an interview with Edith on um, soundtracking, which I loved when you sort of said at one point you went home and your dad had put the Evening Post out on the table and it circled some jobs for you because it sounded like you were maybe sort of entertaining the idea of music, but he's like, come on, get yourself a proper job, which is, I keep coming back to this because I always feel that music was never presented to me up north as a viable career. It was something nice to do and, you know, yeah, have some fun, but, you know, get yourself a proper job at the end of the day. So how did that kind of graduation work from discovery of music to sort of then becoming a professional composer i i genuinely think that there was um a a series of stumbling discoveries a bit like a sort of somebody blundering round an old warehouse in the dark 
would just sort of tripping over things and then falling through a door by accident in that um when i was at school I, there was no nobody i knew worked worked in in the media um then i went to university and did uh, a course called the Tonmeister course at, at Surrey University, which is a music and sound recording thing. And that was more connected with places like the BBC and studios if you're going to go in and be a recording engineer, which I, I loved. But I, I, so I just always thought that, that the, the kind of itch to write music wasn't, wasn't really going away. I didn't, but I, I had no application for it. And, and then really sort of in my 20s, it, it was... Um, through being bad at several things, so so the, I did. I I got some. I got a job in W. Smiths in the record department out of the Yorkshire Evening Post, thanks to my dad, uh, deputy department manager. I'll have you know, but I was te- I was terrible. I was just awful. There were people who were demonstrably better at being deputy department manager of W. Smiths record department in Leeds than I was, and and so it was sort of. I, I met a few people along the way who've just very kindly fired me from from jobs. For, and we, we sat. It was always. It's never done in sort of anger or anything other than you know. I would, I would sit down in in the boss's office and and they would say, "We both know this isn't for you. This is this isn't what you should be doing." And and then uh, I think the two sort of seminal uh, accidental moments was I found, I found myself living in Cambridge very cheaply just in a shared house and I saw an advert from uh, Ben Finn who uh, Ben and Jonathan Finn who wrote Sibelius software the music notation um, package and and at that point the company consisted of the two brothers it was an absolute startup working from Ben's flat and they were looking for somebody who knew a bit about the fledgling music technology to to um, uh, put things in envelopes for them and just and help out and so I, I went along, uh, started helping Ben and Jonathan out with Sibelius, and then I started training people on it um, and uh, went around doing demos and trade shows and those sort of tired-looking people that you see if you ever go to one of those music trade shows who stood there for like what feels like 36 hours handing out leaflets. That, that was me. And, um, and through that, again, utterly sort of by chance... I found myself doing demos down at the Royal Academy um, on a Sunday morning and Michael Kamen, who a uh, late, great, wonderful film composer who had an association with the Academy, um, was looking for a new assistant. He had a relatively high burn rate of assistants, as, as is the case with many of these uh, charismatic and uh, quixotic personalities. Um, and so I just... Uh, Myself and another uh, wonderful composer called James Brett, the two of us were sort of accidentally turned up on a Monday morning at, at Michael's house. Both of us had been asked to come and be, an, be an assistant. Neither of us knew that the other one had been asked. So there were sort of two of us awkwardly standing there going, are you, why are you here? Mm-hmm. I'm here to be an assistant. Um, we turned up on Monday. Michael turned up on Thursday. That's the, that's the, the latest I've ever seen anybody be. Yeah, that's pretty um, late. Four days. <laughs> already setting the tone for what was to come. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that was a sort of, it, it was like accidentally stepping through a 
whatever platform it is in Harry Potter, ten and a half or something. Nine, to, and, a, nine and three quarters. <laughs> nine and three quarters. Yeah. That's it. The platform nine and three quarters and uh, going, you know, going to our version of Hogwarts, which was spending kind of half the year in LA with Michael and half the year in London, mm-hmm. uh, working on these insanely big films, but absolutely accidentally. Yeah. And and you mentioned that he had a high burn rate. What what was the difference between those that had come and gone very quickly before and, and you that seemed to sort of manage to stick it out and, and stay the course? Yeah, I did. I sort of thought about this a bit in the past, particularly with the people that I would come to ask to help me out. You know, what was the sort of, what were those characteristics? And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's sort of false modesty to say it's, it was never down to my extraordinary skills. I think, you know, I, I met people who are much, much better musicians and much better with the technology and much, you know, for every sort of aspect of the work that you could imagine, I knew people who were better at it th- than me. But perhaps there was something um, about a kind of um, a, 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 a sort of... I'm quite diligent. I work. I work quite hard. I like to see things finished, and so I will be there first and in the studio, and I will be there clearing up afterwards with everybody else last. And you know, I, I do like. I, I kind of like to start jobs as well as I can, and then like to get all the way through to the end of it and finish things properly. And and that sort of. Um, I th- I think perhaps that side of of my character matched up with Michael Kamen's much more sort of improvised way of doing things and and so I think in a way the fact that that myself and James could provide some structure around him and then Michael could be really free and just do what he liked um I I think that seemed to work out. Yeah, that's interesting. It it's the kind of I often ask myself that as well in terms of, you know, how how much of success is based around sort of actual skills versus competencies or character. And, and obviously there just there was a working relationship which you 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 solved problems for Michael in a way that sort of suited him and also didn't rough, ruffle your feathers. And it sounds like as well, you know, back to the days when you were sort of working with these guys on Sibelius, you're not afraid to get your hands dirty and just muck in. There's no sort of expectation of like, I'm, this, I'm, I'm above this. It's like, no, we job's got to get done. We, we dig in and get it done. And, and, and maybe that does go all the way back to, you know, working in Smiths and catching the bus at 6.30 in the morning. You know, it was sort of, it's always, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 52 now. I've been, so it's not quite 30 years since I met Michael, but, you know, sort of 27 years, something like that. And and in that time, I don't think there's ever been a moment where I've kind of thought, oh, you know, I'm kind of like, I, I'm too good for this bit. Like I, I live in a state of uh, the uh, of constant amazement, basically. <laughs> not always good amazement, but certainly amazement of some kind or other that, that this is, you know that this is what's happening around me and that uh, that i get to be part of it yeah absolutely this certainly is a is a privilege to to get to do what what you love um to to earn a living um okay well that's probably an excellent sort of segue into uh, going under the skin under the skin good for kind of interested in the, the sort of two aspects is one the sort of the professional 
side of things of sort of composing for film and TV, but then also the crossover of doing your own solo work. Because I think with this podcast, one of the things I'm really interested in is people's creative process and how that, that changes. And I think by sharing sort of ideas and understanding other people's creative processes, that can sort of help us. So um, we're going to sort of have a chat about um, Unforgotten. Um, so I'd sort of love to know kind of like when, when, when that comes through the door and it's, you know, it's on, you know, season four or five now? Uh, well, we're just starting season five. It's very, it's very topical as, as literally last night, as we're recording this, uh, last night we were at the Royal Television Society Awards where season four was nominated for Best Drama but didn't win. And so we're all a little bit sad this morning until the BAFTA nominations were announced three hours ago and it's been nominated for Best Drama in BAFTAs as well. So we're, we're happy again. Amazing. Hungover. Well, it's, it's, it's funny as well because that, the idea that, okay, well, it, it didn't win you know, commiserations, but at the same time you were classed in the sort of like the highest echelon <laughs> of TV drama awards. In a very strong year. Yes, yeah, exactly. it's like, oh, I only came fourth in the Olympics. <laughs> it's like, I'd like to win a medal, but still I am the, one of the fourth best in the world at my <laughs> discipline. So um, amazing. Yeah. So I think with Unforgotten, there's what's kind of interesting is obviously now starting season five. Um, and I think... How how does the process change from the kind of first time the sort of season one came and it's the first time you're doing it versus now sort of season five where you've kind of you've got your established motifs and themes and you kind of you know you know what's happening totally um, I I feel like there's um, having done Sherlock in the past which ran to four seasons and over the course of sort of ten years and now having another show that's that I'm lucky enough to write for that that is running i think we've been doing this eight years now seven or eight years um it is that you get to experience the subtle differences and the sort of and the nuance of how a particular series and the character of that series changes over time which i'm i'm fascinated with so some of my favorite shows inspector morse a bunch of the sort of like long-running classic tv shows they they change because of all sorts of very human reasons that you know the cast age in front of you in in the the case of uh, unforgotten we've got a new you know one of one of our lead characters died at the end of uh, season four so, so there's a new a new actress and a new character in season five and there's a sort of um y- you live with not just the sort of artistic choices but you you live with sort of very human choices we all age as as we're doing it it's it's like a sort of you know long-running tv series i think it's one of the most fascinating parts of of our culture in in that in various layers real life is happening as this as the story is changing so um the trajectory of sherlock was one of sort of expansion if you like and and so each time we came back to do another series somehow it seemed bigger somehow it seemed slightly more fantastical somehow and and so musically david arnold and i that that write sherlock would find ourselves sort of expanding to meet that and so it was bigger and more and and sort of just throw throw as much as we could to make these sort of wonderful spectacles with unforgotten it's a very different, very different feeling. The the show itself is 
yeah, its great strength, I think, is in the the writing and the and the performances, quite naturalistic performances. It's all been directed by by Andy Wilson, by the same director, every frame of it, over all four seasons, and you can tell because all the supporting cast are allowed to be brilliant. They're always brilliant actors, anyway, but you need a great director to be able to frame that so that, that they can perform well. And and so the music for Unforgotten has become a frame, a musical frame for those very human performances to exist within. And, and when we were doing the first season, sort of trying to explore um, how it would work, I, I wrote a bunch of music for it that, I th- I thought at the time was attached to particular characters because for those who haven't seen the show, it's a sort of a similar setup each time. There's a number of uh, characters who could potentially be the the murderer or the villain or the. Um, but we find out that the interest is that we find out a lot about each of the each of the characters that we're seeing and about their lives, and we find out that everybody has got some secrets and that actually even though there is a sort of a crime that, to be solved that, um, yeah, again, we're finding out about the, uh, the, the, the true nature of people. Um, and so then when, when it came to season two, I, I started by writing a bunch of new themes because I thought, well, actually, it's a different person on the screen. It's a different set of characters. Uh, so everybody should have a different theme, a sort of person uh, attached to the person theme and and we all uh myself and the uh andy and uh chris lang who's the writer exec uh all the execs we all watched it and there was and it was roundly dismissed as being like what are you what are you doing why why doesn't it sound like unforgotten anymore and and you know i explained myself and it's kind of well well i've done this because of this reason and that because and uh, and the room just went, no, no, I don't think so. Can can we try sort of using, not exactly the same, but can we try using the themes that were developed from the first season? And, and, and in my head, I'd go, well, that's attached to that character. But then when you take it, take this sort of, um, take it to one level of abstraction and say, well, actually, that's really about anger. That That is an anger theme. And that is a hope theme and that is a theme about loneliness or human connection or sort of tenderness and then you start to to rebuild the score around those ideas you get this incredible i mean i didn't think of it you know as as always i'm last to the party but you get this incredible kind of framing effect of connecting together people because rather than it being a bit sort of Lord of the Rings, as we used to, bless it, I, I was a music editor on Lord of the Rings and, and lots of the sort of um, slightly uh, uh, dark late night humour uh, is, is always generated on difficult shows. And on, on that, it was kind of uh, Sea Hobbit play Hobbit. So it's kind of, which Howard Shaw obviously did absolutely beautifully. But there's there's a sense of those character driven things where the, you know, you're, you're playing tunes for people but on unforgotten we play tunes for emotional ideas um and and now having done that for for four seasons you start to build up this unconscious uh set of uh uh, associations i think or sort of expectations where where you 
you start to you you can hear some sort of tender music played behind a character who who is very unlikable at that time you know might be doing something you know really you know not at their best but then the whole show becomes sort of framed framed in this humanity so again we'll we'll try with season 5 and see how much uh how much has to change but i i think it will be more about trying to make sure that that uh the the new character is framed within what we know to be the world of unforgotten this very humane world so presumably that first series your kind of creative direction is you very much looking at those characters and going okay thinking thematically on a character by character basis um but then obviously those characters change when you say that those those themes changed how how were you trying to change it. i mean were they radically different you'd be sort of trying well, well hey let's try some dubstep for this character <laughs> or, or or was it i mean it was obviously something that the execs picked up on so what it was it wasn't super subtle because i sort of think if it was that they, they might not have noticed and it would have retained that feel yeah i know what you mean i mean they they are very very uh, uh musically and emotionally literate the team at, uh, at unforgotten so they they do notice rightly i i think it's it's almost that they're very emotionally honest about their response to what i'm doing which is sometimes bruising in the moment but is always always better um it, it, the the palette was kind of set from the start really so um strings and me playing the piano and uh, peter gregson's beautiful cello solos over the top and some sort of ethereal sound design but it's really the the strings of piano and cello that are the heart of it but you, you sort of there's uh, a kind of uh, I, I think that the character of certain music, when you zoom right into it, it becomes Im- impossible to to sort of uh, to discern. A little bit like getting too close to a kind of pixelated picture. It's like, well, I don't I don't know what this is. This could be anything. And it's not really until you you zoom out and see the whole that you kind of go, oh, that is clearly. I'm forgotten. That's clearly Game of Thrones. That's clearly whatever it is, and and so you, you're reliant on your own instinct and the instinct of the program makers to be able to, in the moment, go. Oh, I don't think that's very unforgotten. And and if you ask them or myself to define why it's not, we're kind of, you know, it's hard to do that. But you know that when you stack up a bunch of cues in a row, does it feel like we're watching Unforgotten? Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of in, sort of instinct first, and then sort of, and then it's always the composer's job to make that work. I suppose is that something that you find as well is sort of when you're knee deep in a project and you're sort of you know working hours every day to sort of get it done. Is it sometimes difficult to sort of have that almost as you described, like this macro overview of, of the whole because you're so, I mean, I think this is, you know, as a mix engineer and, and as a composer, that's it's that's one of the difficulties. But do you, do you find it difficult yourself sometimes to have that perspective when you're sort of like knee deep in it? Absolutely always. Literally the sort of, I don't, um, it's not even until I, I watch the final broadcast of, or, the, or go and see the premiere of a film that I really get a sense because then then you're watching the whole thing as a as a viewer as a you know a keen viewer of all kinds of things myself and and it's a it's a different headspace you're hearing the music in a very different way and and there've been 
innumerable times when I've listened to something on the telly and just put my head in my hands and just go, oh no, that's not what I meant. And, <laughs> sort of, and, it, and it's entirely down to me, you know, I'm sort of not bitching about the dub levels or any of these kind of things. It, it, you know, it's, you've put your, your finger on, on the kind of hard bit of the job and it doesn't always work you know sort of get stepping back and 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 seeing a two-hour film or you know a six ten episode series and and perceiving how it's working is is incredibly difficult and and but i guess you know if it was if if you could work out the formula or if it was easy then there'd be no challenge so no, it's sort of quite worth doing. And I suppose that's where the you know the value of good execs come in is because they they they're providing the perspective that you don't have, and it's something that Stephen Warbeck touched on in, in one of the first episode was that it's very much a collaborative process, and their feedback and their sort of overview. And he was talking in in relation to a sort of director who had a sort of very specific uh, sort of creative vision, but it's the same idea that it it they provide a perspective which then maybe pushes you or nudges you in a direction that you otherwise wouldn't have taken so in terms of sort of like a creative exploration it's it's actually sort of sometimes beneficial to receive negative feedback i i am totally there for feedback i mean it's sort of you know obviously you know i'm I'm not ego free as as as, i don't think any of us are and so you know it, it can be a you'd like everybody to say that you liked everything that they sent. That's just sort of, that's your default position. But there've been, I think in, in sort of 30 years, there's only been a handful of times when I've, I've felt that the feedback was not in good faith. Like 99% of the feedback I've ever had, which has been a considerable amount is, has been in good faith from people wanting to make things better. And, and if you can sort of, really let that kind of settle in and slightly get over i mean i've said i've done some practical things over the years to try and encourage that thinking within myself i for instance i used to um mentally finish something before i would send it and and that might consist of sort of maybe doing one more mix pass on a demo or or sort of you know, kind of getting in a, a player or two on this is in sort of on working demos that that would be either expensive or, or sort of you know time consuming to replace. So it's sort of finish things, and and if you've mentally shut down on it, it's like well this is what it is, and you send it to somebody who who's got an opinion on it, um, and their opinion is that maybe it should be slower or faster <laughs> the sort of thing that that to, to people who are not involved in, in recording real instruments don't realize that 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 might be quite challenging um and, and so i don't do that anymore i try i try and sort of keep things as open as i can at every point in the process uh which takes a, a degree of trust so so my demos uh, sort of for approval some of them from time to time are are like quite ropey because it's sort of in order to demonstrate the thing that I want to demonstrate I would have either have to record it I mean there's, there's for instance there's, there's there was a cue in the I think probably the last season of Sherlock that relied very much on on a beautiful violin solo over the mm. top of it 
Now, either we recorded the beautiful violin solo, in which case it was finished, yeah. or I demoed it and said, this will be a beautiful violin solo. It sounds like crap right now, but this is, this is where we're thinking. And, and so I think when you keep kind of keep your processes open and keep your, you know, your mental, um, you know, it's, it's one of the questions that I ask back to people if they send me any any music, which I, I don't encourage. <laughs> so, don't, don't send do me not anything. Do that. <laughs> I've got nothing to say. Um, if if anybody say, if does send me anything, my I always ask them first to say, where are you with this? Have you released this? You know, is it finished? Because if it's finished and emotionally you're finished with it, the only thing I'm ever going to say to you is, well done. I, I think it's great. If it is open and there's things that you can do and you're asking for any input onto the next stage, you know, which is sort of, which you can do something about, then that's a different conversation. But that's, it's interesting. That's fascinating what you're saying, Michael, because I've always had a motto when I'm sending off demos is don't make them use their imagination. <laughs> like don't don't send something and go hey this this will be amazing once i've got a real orchestra in there and you know and i've got all these instruments in there it'll be amazing but what you're saying as well is that actually possibly we as musicians are scrutinizing this because it's our own work as well we're scrutinizing it to a level that other people will probably not scrutinize it to they're not listening to the mix in quite the same way they're not listening to the production elements they're probably first and foremost it's like it's an initial um a reaction it's an emotion it's like how does this make me feel so trust and as you say it's a trust thing it's trusting them to be able to hear beyond the ropey demo and the thing is as well is like what we class as ropey someone else might go oh wow is that is that a real violin no exactly. no that's that's logic legato patch uh, and it sounds nothing like a real violin by the way um so yeah, I think that that's very fascinating because I think I probably have a tendency to go too far down that rabbit hole of trying to make it perfect before sending it. Whereas actually, and but as you say, is like if it's not quite right, then going back is an absolute nightmare. And also, what you're saying as well is like psychologically, you finished it. So for someone to come back with changes, you're like, what, what do you mean? We're not. This is finished. Why, why would I want to change it and edit it? This is this is done. Whereas actually, if you're sending a demo with open to collaboration, it's much more in the spirit of, hey, what do you think of this? Let's let's bounce it around and you're in a mind state to possibly receive that feedback and, and critique more so than if you <laughs> spent several grand on uh, on sort of uh, session musicians i i mean i have to say i i only uh have come to these conclusions by making every mistake that is possible yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> over this in fact i can remember i i did a film uh, a beautiful danish film must be about 15 years ago that's quite a while when i'm uh, early on and i you know i was very uh, anxious like everybody would be with the, in the sort of early films and the director it'd been a very fastidious beautiful process it was um a film made by zentropa that's lars von trier's um film production company out in denmark so you know a beautiful sort of art house tradition and um i thought everything had been signed off it was the thursday we were in abbey road on the friday everything was at the copiest it was all we we're all there to go and the director who's an absolutely charming man and a, and a great artist rang me up and he, he knew i would would be uh, not happy but he said that he didn't think the end title cue was working and um 
I had closed. I had closed every possible thing. And I was so frustrated and so cross. I can remember now having to go, I need to go for a walk. I'll call you back in an hour. And and I was just sort of, you know, every part of my insecurity about what I'd be able to do and how it was all going to work was just sort of exploded in the moment by by that call from a very gentle and kind and lovely filmmaker um and you know i walked around the block and and took a deep breath and went back and of course i could change it and of course it was fine and of course and we got there in the end but i think just for my own blood pressure now i just miss out that middle bit (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. absolutely and that's it what is experience but a series of mistakes from which we which we learn (laughs) And it's, many more to come yeah yeah absolutely and i always think you kind of learn more from the failures than you do the, the wins because you, you get a win and it's like right on to the next without really giving it too much thought yeah. whereas when a failure you sort of you sit and brood on it for <laughs> days weeks months and then and then actually sort of come around and go actually yeah do you know i see i see that now with that perspective totally um so okay so that we've talked about the unforgotten and then in terms of you know your um your solo stuff when you're sitting down to do a solo project so take for example the hope of better weather how is your process different because obviously with with a tv you, you know quite often you, you you you're probably getting visuals so you've got the visuals to work from you know the story you've if it's a film you've got a script depending on what stage you're involved obviously with your own solo stuff you've got carte blanche so where do you start yeah i th- i think there's a sort of um in, in my mind, I've got this kind of three-legged stool of music, like a kind of milkmaid stool. So there's, there's, apparently three-legged stools are more stable than four-legged ones. There's something about if it's on an uneven floor. I'm not sure that's right. But anyway, for, for me, it's sort of the, the music that I make is is other film and TV scores or sort of media type things. That's one. and Or then uh, orchestral, classical, recorded type of projects, probably a bigger scale and then piano which is my sort of improvised um diary keeping kind of place it's sort of in a way that the piano uh, part of, of those three things is like i'm not as you know we, we both know extraordinary concert pianists and people you know who, who uh, are sort of amazing amazing performers and and for me, piano is, is not that particularly because I am not that. Um, it it's more it's sort of like a real time version of the creative process. So improvisation has been something that I've always done somehow. I'm never quite sure when when I started doing it, but in my very uh, at, at uni and then um, in my early twenties, I used to play the piano for contemporary dance classes. So which was all improvised, and so you would just sort of they'd count you the teacher would count you in so six seven eight and off you go you'd play until everybody stopped and then you'd play something different and uh so there's a sort of these three different disciplines um of scoring as you described to sort of pre-existing story there's a pre-existing scene you're sort of in a way at some point trying to solve a, a very big crossword puzzle um there's the uh the classical uh, if you like pen and paper architecture building music that i that i love to do which almost always i, I will start um i've got 
pile after pile of manuscript paper and, and books. Obviously, I'm a bit of a stationery. Uh, I, we- I have a weakness for stationery. <laughs> so, so if I see a manuscript book with a nice leather cover anywhere in the world, that, that will be mine. It will be coming home. And, uh, and in these books, I sort of fill with ideas, anything that I see, uh, sort of uh, either whether it's an, uh, a piece of art or a painting or whether it's a story or whether it's some um, poetry or a character or, a, uh, or an idea. So I, I collect these so that when I'm ready to um, put together a, a classical project, then I, I've got a sort of scrapbook of material. And then with the piano, things that start from the piano, it it literally starts from from home. It's it it's the most sort of intimate, really, and and vulnerable place, um, because I'm sort of I'm slightly protected in the other two. So in film and TV, I'm I'm kind of protected by the structure. And, and it's like I mean, most film and TV music, the success of, of it stands and falls on whether the program or the film do, does well, and, and and we can you can hide behind that a bit. Um, and if you uh, do sort of uh, larger scale um, classical stuff or orchestra, you're slightly protected behind the fact that everybody's playing it so beautifully, and you know it's kind of. The, there's a, a certain mystery to it it looks like you're clever even when you're really not and it's, there's, there's something there but then playing the piano there's there's just neither of those when you're improvising it's just sort of like in real time so i'm so i'm fascinated by that but i'm fascinated by those three things and kind of keeping turning the wheel because i don't think i could just do any one of them is it yeah there's you're exposed aren't you when it's just you and a piano you're exposed in a way that you're not i always found that as uh, when i as a when i doubled as a singer songwriter when i was playing solo guitar and singing i felt much more exposed when i had a band and it was great and then get on stage as part of a stage show and it's great because nobody's looking at the band anyway they're all looking at the actors so it's like oh this is this is so much more relaxing than if it's just me on my own um but does that do so that kind of improvisational approach do, is do you also approach scoring you know will you have a scene in front of you and watch that and sort of improvise around that and how much how much then are you sort of reliant on the visuals or will at some point you sort of switch the scene off and and work on that you know tapping in what you were saying before about finding an emotion and tapping into that because i sometimes find that i get very distracted by visuals and i'm i'm too i sticking to it so rigidly that i'm sort of losing it i'm intellectualizing it too much rather than feeling it yeah i it's a really good way of describing it jim because it's for me those the sort of whatever skills i sort of developed in the either the improvisation world or the kind of structural architectural composition world when i'm in a film and tv situation i think that's what's developed over the years is that they're sort of that certain amount of technique is there to choose from and and then I feel like often my job these days is more about choosing the right way to do something for myself than it is necessarily about exactly what it is I'm doing in that if I choose. So, so for instance, uh, I mean, again, thinking about uh, the late Michael Kamen, who who comes up my thoughts so so much, I think when I'm uh, talking about these sort of things, he was an amazing improviser. Um, but he got no patience at all so he used to want to improvise action cues 
and and it was just like oh michael let's not do this let's not. and he wanted to improvise like a five minute cue in one take every every time and so he wouldn't sort of stop and go oh i've got the first minute and a half okay you know we can go from there it's like no you know he wanted to go go all the way back to the start S- switching it. time signatures seven eight five eight four four oh yes <laughs> and it was when he did it right it was extraordinary to behold but obviously there were many times when it didn't quite uh, didn't quite come off so if there is a uh, let's say an, an action cue then then a structural approach to that works really well you've got to do the maths you've got to find out where it's going to go you, you don't want to sort of write yourself into a corner so don't start too fast you know all, all this that technical stuff starts to happen but then uh, an underscore cue um particularly when if, if there's been sort of you know if, if what the characters are talking about has, has got strong emotional content which is you know almost all the time in, in the sort of dramas that we that we do then for me the very best way to uh, to try and underscore that scene is to is to play along and and then it's immediately obvious from being like a dance accompanist it's immediately obvious if you're overplaying you, you just you know you embarrass i embarrass myself in this it's like oh stop it that's much much too much and uh, and then you can you can breathe with the with the actors you can breathe with the performances um but nine times out of ten when when it's going wrong for me it's because i've chosen the wrong approach in the first place I've started improvising when I should have been doing some structure. I've started mapping things out too early when I should just be finding. I, I mean, sometimes it's because I've not got strong enough thematic material. And and so I start structuring something out and and three quarters of the way through, you kind of go, it just hasn't got a good tune. I haven't got a tune that I can play right now. And, and those, are, those can be difficult days because like a really good playing a really good tune that has been set up for from for the rest of the film for this one big moment is is either one of life's ecstatic glories or if it's not going well and you haven't got the tune it's not working it's just a dagger to the heart yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's very obvious to everybody yeah well and that it's that feeds in as well to what you were saying before about and that that's when being able to sort of step back and see the whole is that when you can, you can sort of go actually do you know what i've i've been approaching this wrong from the start because when you're in the thick of it you're like it's not working but why why and you sort of just keep plugging away and you sort of like if i if i flog this horse long enough <laughs> i will get something out of it but actually if you can sort of step back um you sort of have this moment of realization it's like okay well my approach has been wrong from from the start so that again just sort of highlights the importance of that that perspective um, and you know you were talking about as well when you sort of sit down at home on the piano do you find that some I mean technology is incredible and I always cite technology you know I think it sounds like you're much more comfortable with manuscript paper I mean I need to hear it to know that it works so technology has provided that for me I wouldn't be able to sort of work in a world where we were still working with sort of manuscript paper um, so technology is incredible but do you also sometimes find it restrictive in a way where you're actually when you're sitting down at a piano and there's no click track and you're not sort of sort of mapping things out that there's a certain freedom that comes with that absolutely and and it's i mean i've kind of uh going through a bit of a i was talking about moving moving house i think earlier before we started and we've, we've moved out of london out to the country and the um uh i haven't got 
well there still is a big fancy studio in london but i haven't been to it for months months and months i i've just we've i've got a little study in the converted garage of of our house and i'm trying to um create the conditions for um that mental exploration that isn't driven by the technology it's not sort of pre-gridded and and that's not to say that i haven't you know i've got computers in here and you know i've, I've you know I, i'm gonna do this year's tv uh scoring in here you know have some some <laughs> so exp- a few exquisite pieces of outboard if, if anybody's uh complaining that the quality is going to drop such thing but uh but it's just the idea of um creating conditions for my own freedom of thought and expression and and i'm i'm actually really excited about that i i used to be excited about gear and technology because like you described very well the ability to hear and create um the actual noise you know noises that move people on on the computer and to be able to sort of write for multiple instruments and all of that was absolute witchcraft when we first started to do it and I, and I found it so fascinating um and and so I still appreciate how engaging it is for for other people but for me I'm I'm moving I think into a slightly new phase where I'm excited by the opportunity to try and think and and there might be nothing in there jim you know i might be scraping about in an empty old biscuits in <laughs> but i you know we're sort of none of us are going to be around forever and i think i would uh i'd be sort of gently disappointed in myself if i you know got to a point when i when i wasn't really working so much anymore and i hadn't given myself created the conditions where i could try and think up my best stuff no absolutely it, i would be very surprised if you were scraping biscuits and i think that, <laughs> that 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 resonates hugely with me to the point i actually on monday released a, a musical musing which is just basically kind of thoughts as i have them um, and one of the things that i touched on that in that was creating from the heart rather than creating from the head wonderful this idea that and I think this ties into what you're saying about gig. I've seen your studio, and because it's funny when you when when you said you had a stationary fetish, I was like, well, that's at least two then, because you've got a gear, a gear fetish as well. But I also read you, you've, there's a post on your blog as well where you talk about you've sort of kind of touched on this about the sort of like the tendency is to sort of get distracted by sort of flashing lights and what have you, whereas actually you know particularly i think music any kind of music is this particularly music for for tv and film but it's all about trying to elicit emotion um in the listener and the viewer and what better way to do that than try and imbue your creation with as much emotion as possible and if you are drawing on your own emotion and you're getting in touch with that emotion when you create i think that goes a long way to creating something which is going to more likely to move someone emotionally and then actually so with taking away all these sort of distractions of of gear and and i you know i get i don't have a fetish quite like yours but i do <laughs> there's, there's there's very few things that get me excited but buying a new bit of gear 
does. Um, but actually just sort of getting back and actually focusing in on it, you know, the, the starting point is like, where are you creating from and how are you creating? I think that's possibly where the, the greatest reward lies. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I have some other thoughts about the sort of um, commoditization, if that's even a, a word of, of what we do, which is in terms of the, the bits of it that can be easily packaged up and we can have things sold to us that that we are told will will make us feel better that they're, they're just obviously the bits that are going to that are going to receive the the most sort of commercial support because there are businesses to be to be had from selling us things that that we think will make us either get more work or be better at the work that we're that, that we're getting and and i i don't uh uh, resent any of that everybody's you know trying to feed their families but i think actually the stuff that's important for me right now is not something that can be sold to me so there's not a, another plug-in that can make me take a walk up in the fields there's not a sort of a particular piece of gear that will create the conditions for for me to freely explore either on a piece of paper or or the piano or or just just in my mind an idea and in fact the opposite is true because almost always to buy a piece of gear whatever your personal circumstances are you're really trading that you, you need to earn that money somehow so that takes time so the, so the thing that you're trading is your time for that for that particular thing and and I'm massively aware of the deep hypocrisy of somebody like me with a ridiculous studio going, oh, it's not really important. It's just go for a walk. Um, but but I'd, I'd, I'd like to frame it rather as uh, not necessarily as hypocrisy, but just as a journey where it's sort of, um, yeah, that stuff was so, and still is incredibly engaging to, 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 to be surrounded by gear that, has got a story and has been often handmade or you know made with a great deal of care and design and that and often that does sound extraordinary i mean you can you know it's sort of it's not all smoke and mirrors you know some things to my ears sound better than other things and and, and i'm interested in that but but now i'm interested in in uh, i think the in the american uh, Senate or Congress, they have an expression of reclaiming my time, and I think that's when when one of the senators asks a question and the person is not answering it, they they get to claim their time back so they can do something else. And and I think I am I am reclaiming my time. Yeah, absolutely. And so with that in mind, then, so the the, the gear is no longer providing the impetus. But so for projects like the Hope of Better Weather and your forthcoming album Whitson. Where does where does the inspiration start for that? Is that kind of starting in the um, the fields of uh... <laughs> Berker said? That's it. Sunny hearts. The um, uh, hope of better weather for me has has been about people. So it, it's sort of been uh, a kind of a door opener in a way to a slightly new way of of working. In that, I uh, the the album has got um, my original piano improvisations from 10 years ago so the, the which is is sort of it's slightly spooky hearing them because 
it's literally your it's like a little time capsule it was your your fingers from 10 years ago that was actually you know sort of the the humanity of of the sort of 10 year old a 10 year younger person is is built in there and i was trying to find a a, a way to um I, I i think kind of create the conditions for me to 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 move forward and so by a, approaching another a group of artists all of whose work i really admired lots of different people and then giving them permission to to just do what they wanted to be to be absolutely free i think not only then produced these amazing remixes and and sort of had a a life of its own uh, particularly i mean bill ryder jones wrote this heartbreaking song just so beautiful based on uh, one, of, one of the piano pieces and then i and then i played it back to him so i've sort of did a piano version of his song which is based on my piano thing in the first place and and i think there was a there's been a process of sort of like of freedom and and so then the hope of better weather as a as an album is really about sort of like you know when you start from an improvisation where can you go and 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 there are sort of like five examples four or five examples on there of of the the many directions that you could take and i think then that sort of has opened the door for 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 what's next for me so uh, i have got this project called witson which there'll be sort of more um more to come this year as they as they say in all the uh, dodgy trailers um but that was i i think in you know in hindsight that was then me uh doing this whole process myself so i so i decided to make something uh very personal based on some family stories and, and my grandfather died uh, a, a few years ago who was a very sort of influential figure in our family and uh, and i was sent some some photos of him and my grandma and my mum when my mum was uh had just been born and these these pictures are from um 1939 just before war broke out and they're on the beach at scarborough and it's sort of it, it's quintessentially 1930s and yorkshire and also the handwriting underneath says that war is about to break out in like three months time and they're they're my grandparents sort of holding my mum between between them on the on the beach so i was very struck by this so i started doing making something that had got uh was me playing the playing the piano and doing a little bit of singing heavily treated and playing a, t- a tiny little bit of trumpet in there as well just doing I would, all i would i would love to hear your voice also tune <laughs> it's the only way anybody ever will it sounds like sound like t-pain t-pain, t-pain at the piano <laughs> exactly <laughs> not not a natural singer jim and the, <laughs> not like you could tell and and then i sort of i, I built this uh, built this little very intimate uh, musical musical world that's that's become this album and then and then sadly my dad died last year um in the middle of of making it and and that took on a whole new uh sort of um uh symbolism if you like or a sense of sort of memories and and casting memories backwards and forwards um so we're sort of that that's in the process of uh being finished off now but but i think hope of better weather was the the door uh, was a door that was open to to let me do it and i think in my own head 
getting a taste. <laughs> it mentions on the sort of on your biog that um, Whitson is a sort of yeah, an exploration connecting between sound and memory, um, and I've always sort of marvelled at how music has this incredible ability to spark very, very vivid memories. I mean, so, so does sort of smell, but particularly music, I can listen to a piece of music and it will transport me back to a particular day, particular time, you know, I was doing it at a particular age and I can remember it very vividly. I always think creatively we are shaped by everything that's come before and what we've been exposed to and consumed. Are there specific kind of, it could be albums it could be songs doesn't it could be film scores it could be anything but specific sort of milestones in music which you can identify which you feel have have had a profound influence on shaping who you are as creative today totally totally i mean it's sort of um almost every every day since i could remember there's been something musical that has informed that day and is sort of and has has colored it so you're sort of looking back to see the really big ones i can remember hearing uh keith jarrett clone concert first of all and that I, th- I think the things that are really memorable for me are things that open up a whole world it's like is this possible how is this a thing so keith jarrett one of the finest jazz pianists that's ever been all around uh, amazing musician was known for these series of improvised concerts that he was doing in the 70s and and continued um until very recently and and he just turned up at a venue and played for people and the entire thing was improvised and this sort of when I was starting to improvise it I I didn't I wasn't sure whether we were allowed to do this whether it was just something that stayed in the dance studio or whether people would actually listen to it and so somebody went oh you, you have to listen to this and it and of course, I thought I was the first person that had found it, and everybody else was going, "Yeah, mate, that was the best-selling piano record ever." And it's like everybody else has got it. Um, but there's something extraordinary when I, I still listen to that so much now, and and it, I remember, I feel like I remember every other time that I've listened to it, which is hundreds and hundreds of times, and, and because it feels like an act of creation in real time, it's 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 that the extraordinary thing where you can sort of feel him reaching for something. And it's taking its time, it's taking its time. And then the sort of dam breaks and he finds the place that he wanted to go to or he sort of surprises himself. It's, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary record. I, I got a transcription once and started to try and learn it and then decided that that was utterly missing the point of it. <laughs> yeah. like, that's not what this is. Yeah. And so, so that opened the door for piano playing. I think classical, the, the first time I heard... Uh, like John Taverner's Protecting Veil. There's, there's basically, for, for someone of my disposition, John, Sir John Taverner and Arvo Pert are the sort of mothership of, of people who, who feel like they have created an environment where they've made permission for themselves to express, for both of them, spiritual thoughts. Uh, now, I'm not a religious person, person but there's a sort of permission that i'm giving myself more and more now to to let music explore thoughts of sort of humanity spirituality perhaps in general rather than specific for me and and so as i'd always associate that with sort of like non-living people with i mean obviously john tavener died but the sort of you know yes you you can hear bark and kind of go oh that is that's spiritual music um but 
it, it felt for a long time that that was sort of old music and we weren't allowed to do that anymore. Um, but uh, so hearing the, there's this, the Protecting Veil is this extraordinary cello and orchestra piece where the cello is like just up in the in the heavens all the way through. It's the most affecting and sort of uh, emotionally vivid uh piece and again remember that opening a door and and then in in really different ways about identity when i was a when i was a kid in batley we were uh, this weird hybrid of goths and new romantics and slightly punk as well and we we didn't know what we we're doing so we dressed in stuff we got off leeds market and there was a lot of dodgy hairspray colors and there was you know it was all of that and so um uh, the japan record ghosts was was for me extraordinary i don't think you could probably hear much of sort of david sylvian and and the band in directly in the music that i write now but at the time i i attached to this idea of sort of music being a uh, something that you that sort of expressed an identity and almost like created an identity it sort of had this feedback loop where here were people who who were sort of you know for a small town boy uh, from Batley, he was this sort of exotic sounding, you know, kind of, uh, fluid world where the music was the reason for it and the sort of fashion and the, you know, the kind of lifestyle sort of clubbing stuff that was, that was around it, but it was the, the music was, was central to it. So I, whenever I hear, I mean, I've got a copy on vinyl, of course, now, because I'm middle-aged, so <laughs> <laughs> that's the rules. Um, but, you know, when I, I do put it on from time to time, and it's like, oh, that is a direct hit back to being a teenager. So that, you talk, what you're talking about there, so, like, obviously that, it sounds like it was kind of part of the kind of punk goth movement, but you feel that that was very much a, it, it was the music first and, and all the bells and whistles around it came afterwards which is quite interesting because I sometimes have a maybe slightly cynical view of a, a lot of particularly modern music whereby um, it's, it's all the glitz and glam that comes first. And actually then the music is just in a, in a, in a, in a world where it's all about fame and celebrity, it's kind of all of this sort of the, the icing is the main bit and actually the cake itself is just a sort of crumb at the bottom that sort of everybody's forgotten about. I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, touching on, um, so being part of the Sherlock family for for ten years and and meeting other online or in in the flesh sometimes um, people who connected to the show in the way that I connected to music when I was a teenager, then the the depth of that the the, the how meaningful in that case a TV show is to to people is is something that. I think sometimes we can, we kind of, particularly if it's other music or film and TV that, that we as perhaps in my case, certainly as older, as an older person don't, don't get, it's like, I don't like that. I don't understand why there's anything in that. But if it, if there is a, if there is a connection, um, if, if someone finds a connection in it, I, I think particularly in your sort of teenage years, the, these are heartfelt and true connections. And I think we sort of, uh, what's that expression on, uh, treading on people's dreams it's sort of you know i'm, I'm always hugely hugely respectful 
about that because because I remember what I was like and it was really important to me. And what about, I mean, with the, when you're growing up, was there sort of particular uh, film soundtracks or film compo- or film TV composers that you you say? I've had a conversation with a guy called Paolo Pandolfo um, in an episode. He's an editor. And he talks about Jurassic Park being, for him, this sort of epiphany, sort of visual epiphany, like moment where he was like, wow. And I often talk about Star Wars, I think, being, for me, uh, and what I th- think at the time is you know like, i had vhs cassette which was just worn out because i used to i think i probably watched it every day at some point i don't know seven or eight years old but i, I think actually a part of that was the music i think i didn't appreciate at the time that the, you know john williams and his scores was somehow having this kind of profound effect on me which i didn't kind of realize at the time but are there certain certain films or certain scores that you can sort of remember as sort of just going blowing your mind in that same way that sort of japan did do, do you know i i i, I, I hear a lot, a lot of my colleagues and they're describing from whatever vintage that there's these really sort of strong experiences in the cinema often like say star wars john williams features heavily on the, on that list i think for a lot of <laughs> yeah. us obviously a master but i think my life was much more parochial and and sort of smaller i think I, like i remember coronation street i remember the sort of you know i remember the sort of film and telly that I consumed until really maybe going away from home to, to uni was was what was what we watched as a family or what you know I remember watching Minder or you know it's like stuff that's and 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 so there's a sort of um I don't know whether subconsciously it's why I've ended up doing a lot of telly but the that's that sense of like I did like going to the cinema, but it felt so remote. Like I didn't, I didn't, have, I didn't make any connection between what I was doing playing the brass band with what Star Wars was. I just didn't, you know, it, it, I didn't join the dots. I I joined the dots with my friends and our where we used to get up to on the Saturday night and the clubs we used to go to, and that sort of like, and, and that's starting to express through music. Um your kind of identity um and then it was sort of i, I think really I, I i worked in a recording studio for a, for a year when i was um uh halfway through uni and i, and I met a, a film composer and film tv composer a guy called nick beaker and he is possibly the most uh urbane and wonderful and generous and kind man that i've met in the whole the whole of the industry and he slightly took me under his wing you probably might uh deny it but i i felt he did and it, he had a a wonderful and beautiful wife and great he's, he's this lovely family and and he drank amazing coffee and was felt so sophisticated to me it was like nick you're, you're a proper legend and I, I i did some bits and pieces for him and and i think it wasn't until him who's the first person that i'd ever met that wrote music for anything and and i thought it was incredibly cool and still do and that kind of that was what opened it I, th- I think probably the story for me has been about people rather than necessarily you know the sort of the the work itself first and when when you say he was drinking um sophisticated coffee I'm, I'm imagining you mean nescafe gold blend 
not, like not, two scoops. Yeah, not not Nescafe regular. Double scoop of gold blend. Because <laughs> in, certainly in, in Leeds in the sort of like eighties and nineties, that that was can that not. You, can you imagine? I mean, it was sort of I I literally never seen one of those. They had, of course, he had one of those the cool little sort of uh, you know espresso stovetops, and uh, and and this was like somebody. Had, I don't know. Yeah, but it's terrible, isn't it? Because. Th- very rarely it happens these days, but I'll go somewhere like my uncle and auntie do this. I go around to their house and they offer me a coffee, and I always say no because they they, they still serve instant. Uh, and my uncle does this terrible thing where he's he's got a, he's got a little espresso machine, but it only does uh, single shots, and oh, it's yeah. not it's, if he's making two coffees, it's not strong enough to do. Uh, you know, you can't do two coffees on a single shot, so he'll do a single shot, share it out between two cups, and they'll top it up with uh, instant. <laughs> just to give I, it that extra little yeah so i've just like um, I, I actually yeah. ask now is like are we doing proper coffee and if the answer's no then i'm not interested and then but some, sometimes you go to a meeting and you'll have a sip of coffee and you'll you go, go wait a minute that's oh. instant <laughs> to have a flashback uh, yeah but once upon a time that was all, all oh, i drank yeah. Um, but yeah um i'm conscious of time michael so um i will kind of start to um to, to wind up thanks so much for taking the time to chat it's been uh, it's been brilliant i've loved it mate um, a couple of quick fire questions to finish on. Um, I, I would like to do uh, the kind of gear slash plug-in porn bit because I know people do like it. Um, so just sort of quick fire. Uh, what's what's go to go to VST library? Yeah, I I sort of I I, I resist this, Jim. I know I know this is <laughs> I know this is part of your of a very successful format that that they. Uh, that we have and i am sat i mean the computer that i'm zooming on now has got logic open and and, and yes there's, there's a, a bunch of stuff in there but i have to say i slightly dread them all and 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 i still use all the plugins that i've used for ages so i i use uh cinematic studio strings to to do my mock-ups and things um but i sort of um uh i i i think if there was an audio way of of describing the look on the slightly pained look on my face at the moment then, then that was, is there a sound effect for that we could we could drop that there in. is i can certainly find one yeah it was sort of like a, an animal dying slowly, yeah, exactly <laughs> oh a sort of resignation and kind of like i know we need to it's yeah. Just like, yeah okay so we'll just say cinematic strings i mean it's it's just i think it's always one of those things is sort of i think people always think that you know you sort of probably got like three different rigs and you're running Vienna Symphonic, but it's like, it doesn't matter. And at the end of the day, if you're re-recording the strings anyway, you're literally doing a mock-up. And obviously that ties in with what you were saying earlier, which is why don't finish a cue, just sort of do a, a mock-up, a rough mock-up. And, and do you know what, Jim? I, like I have had, I have been that soldier. I was on the Giga Studio thing with PC slaves like way back and, you know, spending what, what then was, you know, definitely the price of a family car on a, on a bunch of computers and 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 as we climbed up that hill i it got more and more extraordinary what you can do and i i think i just got more and more disillusioned with with doing it and and gosh there are people out there that can make the computers sing and you know it sounds extraordinary but um yeah it's a mean, means to an end i've got a very old dusty bin mac pro here that i'm sort of refusing to update and you know, I, I am. I've turned into that bloke, angry man shouting. It's what that Simpsons meme. I am yeah, that, yeah, um, yeah, that, yeah. 
It's still running Snow Leopard or whatever because you, oh, yeah. you, you're worried about updating it in case something stops working and then it takes you a week to find out what's not working. Um, exactly. So, yeah. Um, okay, well, I'm just, we'll ask about sort of go-to piece of gear because you said you've got a couple of pieces of gear there in your home studio. So the, there must have been, you, you've gone into this big studio in London, you've gone, right, you're coming with me, you're coming with me. What are we, what are we talking? <laughs> do, do you know what? It's, it's, it's literally, as again, very timely. As we speak, there are things being unplugged and put in cars down in London right now to bring them here. Uh, yeah, because, I, I mean, I genuinely, again, whether it's sort of uh, uh, confirmation bias because I've, paid for these things and they're expensive then there's some bits of kit that i think get me where i want to go to faster and so i've got a couple of bricasti reverbs and the outboard ones and i know there are plugins and i just can get there faster with the outboard i just turn it on and it sounds fine and so i can move on and then i've got um uh, a little collection of of outboard that i like so i've got a a valve little valve mixer called a fat busted and i use that on the string stem because if i am doing hybrid real real recorded strings and samples then i've haven't been able to make anything do what the fat busted does which is sort of distort in a very jolly way the strings it sort of brings everything to life um and again it's just got like two or three knobs on it that i twiddle so it's it's just there and it's done um and the same if I'm doing tele, a lot of it is in stereo, sort of stems, but ultimately you're delivering in stereo. Um, and so I've got a kind of mastering chain of uh, a Prism EQ and then a Rupert Neve Designs Masterbus processor and then their Masterbus converters to get back into the computer. Um, and, it, you know, you might say it's overkill. Um, and and I, I promised... Uh, Nick, who who works with me and has done for years and years, when when we set up in this in, in my cosy uh, garage study, I said, "Oh, just, and Nick, I'll do it all on plugins. It's fine. We don't need to bring anything from the studio." <laughs> and I tried it, Jim. I did yeah. try. It. I sat there for an afternoon, and I go, I t- "I'm not sure." No, can we just? Well, <laughs> it's it's one of it's one of these debates, isn't it, which rages on YouTube and on internet forums about. Uh, but I. I'm a staunch advocate. I think that when you put audio through circuitry, something happens, whether it's solid state or whatever, and you're talking about the fat busted, it affects the sound and it creates the harmonics and it creates imperfections. It's all about the imperfections. And the human ear likes those imperfections. And so I'm, I'm totally sold in it. I mean, I'm, I'm very much in a digital domain at the moment because um, I've, like you, I've moved out of London. So I'm sort of in a halfway house. Um, but I just stand by that if you, it's like, you know, you could DI a guitar straight into the computer, but if you, it, it's not the same as when you put it through an amp because there's a lot of other variables, not least the circuitry in the amp, but then the microphone, the heat of the room, the distance for it. There's, there's lots of things happening, which is so, so difficult to, to recreate. So um, no, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think, you know, that, that gear and it just, adds a, a gloss a sheen um a little bit of magic that it's it's, it's almost intangible it's, you can't even explain it and it's even when you ab them you're like well there's a difference but it's hard to know what it is um but it's there and but so, you know i remember you sent me a while back i think when you were about to oh, yes. indulge in uh, buying a bit of i think that was a, a ams neve the uh, it was a 8816 the uh, analog summer yeah and you said, and genuinely, because this is, it's rarely possible to have a genuine sort of blind AB unless you're setting up an ABX thing with somebody helping you. And, um, but I, 
I listened to, I think you've done two, two bounces or two mixes, and I listened to them without knowing which was which, because, probably because I wasn't concentrating. I hadn't, I hadn't read the email properly. What am I doing? I no, no, I, delib- I, I, I deliberately oh, didn't right. say. Yeah, yeah, that right. was it. And one was clearly better. Was yeah. very clearly better to my yeah. ears, anyway. Yeah, you know, it was, and it was. Uh, I say unanimously. I, I think yeah. I've since about eight people, and I only think one of them came back saying that they none. So, like but the that's, for me, that's yeah. That, yeah. As, a, as a jury, that stands up in court <laughs> for me. Um, so yeah, and I, I think the sort of the, the, what rounds it off with the tech, I think for me is that when it's good, I it disappears for me. And so that that's why I've kind of that's why we're just getting those bits of outboard, uh, just to just to sit down next to me on the chair when there's got some little racks just um, coming because when um, like when you're playing the instrument disappears you know on a good day anyway you you know you're not thinking about the mechanism of the piano you, you you're just you know without sounding like yorkshire yoda you know you are sort of <laughs> one, one with the instruments oh. uh, and and that's when the that's when the tech and the gear really works for me and and because i know those bits of outboard and, and i know what is going to happen when i turn the distortion up on the fat busted one and i know and i know what's going to happen if i sort of like shove some of that Picasti with a, in my case, a luxuriantly long 3.5 second <laughs> reverb tail on. So I, I, there can never be enough reverb for me. So, and, and then I just enter again on a good day. I just enter some slightly weird zone where I'm kind of in the, I mean, there's lots of great research on flow states and stuff that I'm fascinated by. Um, so anything that takes me out of that flow state has to go um, so that I can just spend as much time in it as possible. Um, and, and, you know, I think this is, this is I'll probably finish on this rather grandiose statement, but I think individuals spending time in whatever their flow state is for them. Obviously we're talking about music, which is our, both of our deep passions, but can be absolutely anything. But I just think he's good for the world. It's just a really, really good thing. It's sort of, it's, it's, uh, adds adds to the sort of beauty of everything that we're making and 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 sort of gets you everybody slightly free from the kind of commercial pressures that are on everybody you know it's sort of and that can be anything crafts i think are beautiful people who do crafts and woodwork and yeah bring it on well that seems like a profound moment on which to uh, leave proceedings michael um so just quickly, if people, obviously we've got the hope of, of better weather um, is out now. That's available on all major streaming platforms. Um, when can we expect Whitson? Uh, yeah, coming up, coming up this year, definitely a 2022 release. And um, for, for anybody that does enjoy physical, like vinyl and uh, physical forms of music, if you go to michaelpricemusic.com, there is a shop where there's things like uh, I think there's Dracula vinyl left. There's some Sherlock vinyl coming as well. So, uh, and there's hope of better weather. There's a lovely uh, LP version of that for those yeah. who enjoy that kind of thing. To have that lovely tangible version oh, yeah. of the product, which is sort of gone from kind of modern streaming world. That's um, it. But yeah, well, thank you so much for, for for taking the time to chat, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, oh, Jim, very um, welcome, sir. 
Um, and yeah, well, good luck uh, with uh, finishing off Whitson and obviously season five of Unforgotten and whichever other incredible projects. Fingers crossed for the uh, the BAFTA nomination as well. Yes, that um, just came in this morning. So well done, team Unforgotten. Yeah, I hope it might be another free dinner. You never know. Yeah, obviously, anyone listening to this in the future will will know the results of that already. Uh, but we will we will cross our fingers and, and wait. But um, yeah, thank you. All, all the best, mate. And um, yeah, chat to you soon. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, and given that you've listened this far, I feel you might have, then I would be honoured and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. By subscribing, you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops. And by rating the show, you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to. I certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations, and I genuinely hope you do too. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email me, podcast at larpmusic.com. Larpmusic.com is my digital abode, and the home of the podcast is larpmusic.com forward slash Sync Music Matters Podcast. And Sync Music Matters Podcast is hyphenated. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. <laughs>